Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever, wherever, whomever you may be, vegetable, animal or mineral, whatever you decide you are. Welcome to Agitators Anonymous. This is episode 19, as I remember, or at least try and remember. And I know I had promised um, a couple of particular uh, episodes, as I'd said, one before on Alan Turing, one on the Knights Templar and a few other things. They are all half finished and I keep adding and subtracting things to them. I think my mental state of the last few weeks has begun to affect my ability to close the deal, so to speak. And they are yet to be finished, but I will get around to finishing them. Have no fear. Well, have no other fears on top of all your other fears. So, I had an interesting conversation with a taxi driver at the weekend. I got in the car. I knew he was up to something. He had that mischievous Dublin look about him. Dublin taxi drivers are well known and notorious for sorting out the world with you in five or ten minutes. And this gentleman was no different. He took a long look at me in the rearview mirror and he sized me up and he said, Well, buddy, what do you think of this? It's a load of bollocks, isn't it? It's bullshit, isn't it? I thought to myself, aha, here we are, the voice of the people. The voice of the people speaks. Let's, let's consult the oracle and see what we learn. 
And I said to him, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, this whole fucking thing, man. I said, okay. In your opinion, how many people get in the back seat and are skeptical about what's going on? Is it half? Is it a quarter? Is it, I don't know. Tell me, what do you think? What are people saying? You're the, the mouthpiece of the public, so to speak, with all due respect. So tell me what's going on. And we started to bat back and forth some of the statistics, some of the, you know, some of the more contradictory elements of the whole narrative that we're told to wear masks, then told not to wear masks. Um, everybody's very upset at China. Then nothing about China is mentioned. It's the virus can be transmitted this way and not that way. And etc etc we were threatened with the amend we were threatened with the inevitable collapse of our health service which never happened but yet here we sit with an 11 p.m curfew and no real moment where we can all work towards which is one of the most complicated things i think with respect to our human nature to work with no deadline so to speak and you know he said to me, I think it's all a load of bollocks, man. It's just all a load of bollocks. This universal basic income. That's just going to be linked. PayPal, man, they cut you off from that. They cut you off from your credit cards. Don't want you on the street protesting. Protesting, do you know what I mean? I said to him, well, in my opinion, Irish people don't have the greatest track record on coming out in the streets and protesting. He goes, you're fucking right, buddy. You're fucking right. We're living off past glories, we are. I said... Okay, well, so what do you think about... A complicated thing happened in our political system. In the middle of this, we got a new leader, a new government. There's sort of like a kind of timeshare, an apartment timeshare thing happening. And the previous tenants of the flat were a little bit rowdy, a little bit more open to having a few late night wines on the balcony and letting it hang out a bit. And now the new incumbent the new incumbent rulers of the manor are a little bit more authoritarian. And of course, they are helped and aided and abetted by media that is by now so bored with itself and so bored and confused with its narrative that a few people having a drink in a bar that got a tiny bit out of hand and becomes front page news everywhere and is trending on Irish Twitter and could be the poke in the ribs that makes this rather grumpy new tenant of the timeshare apartment pull the drapes. And um, there's no euphemism there. But call time on the small freedoms that we've had. Small in relative terms. Um, and we might be looking at stepping back into phase one phase two i don't know i think in reality what's happening is everybody is biding their time to get children back to school which is the most important thing in any society if you ask me i can put up with an 11 p.m pub curfew don't forget i was a teenager in the 80s when dublin had no nightlife and going out in dublin at in 1989 or 1991 and no i'm not that old thank you but i was an early teenager meant 
that you either had to pay exorbitant amounts for a taxi when no one had any money or walk 10 to 15 to 20 kilometres back from anywhere. Anyway, at the moment, the city is a bit like that, but our very reverent taxi driver, listen, buddy, take care of yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah? Yeah. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. I'm trying. He didn't give me any advice or any tips on my mental health. Um, but maybe that was not the point. Maybe he was just a chimera. Did I pronounce that right? Maybe just a figment of my imagination, seeing as I had been um, drinking alcohol. Who knows? Either way, this litmus test of public opinion was not impressed at where we are heading. As I said before on previous podcasts, the idea of things being reduced to nothing um, when there are so many different agents, actors, rational, irrational, different powers at work throughout the world strikes me as mathematically improbable and impossible. But then again, what exactly do we know? The answer is not a hell of a lot. Are are the powers that be in on some Machiavellian plot to uh, resell our timeshare? I don't know. Or is it just chaos? But a chaos that's going to be dragged out to the bitter end in order for us to demand some order in the middle of that chaos. See what I did there? Yeah. Is that the... Is that now the shadow narrative let's call it that that's a tm you can't have that that's mine um whereby we're moving into some sort of chaotic element as i said with no end in sight and so therefore limits on our freedoms can be surreptitiously introduced and then we can be spoon fed back small and minor adjustments to those freedoms oh look we can let you out till 1am now but you can't travel abroad, you can't go here, you can't go there. So, who knows? Like I said, the chimera of the Dublin taxi driver was my thermometer test of the public, and he was not impressed with where things are headed. Impressed is maybe the wrong word. Depressed could also be the word. Um, I keep getting messages from people, very genuine and positive messages of support of people telling me that these chats are getting them through a couple of hours of gloom of giving them a little kick in the arse if they needed one with a little bit more purpose if that is true then that is great one thing for sure is that the numbers keep growing keep growing um i wish my musical numbers would grow quite as fast but who knew maybe i should have always been a politician or a bullshitter, one or the other. And some might say that's been my job for decades. However, so, what I thought I would do is tackle a complicated subject. Tackle a difficult subject. Because now that we have a little audience and a growing audience of people, maybe this gives me some form of a platform, some forum. Um, it, it means I can maybe step up onto the aerial pegitiga. Is that the right way to call it? The aerial peg... 
Yeah, it is. The Aerogal, the Aerial Pagitga, which is the mount outside Athens, the discussion forum, the the mount upon which everyone climbed to discuss things. Maybe let's try and step up there and look at a few complicated subjects. Because one part of me wanted to establish the podcast, not about my opinions about politics, not about my, not based on my angry reaction to things. It was not supposed to be reactionary. It was not supposed to be necessarily divisive on purpose. This was not from my intention. But yet at the same time, the fact that I have neglected to tackle a couple of things makes me feel the the minor impudence of cowardice, perhaps. So what I want to talk about is cancel culture. I want to talk a bit about freedom of speech, which for some reason has become this dirty and complicated phrase that I don't really understand how that, how that happened, how people I had more faith in um, quite easily threw it under the bus, threw the idea of it under the bus, and initially, or how this became a dirty phrase um, or something that people assumed you would use as a defense if you had something to hide when freedom of speech is one of the tenets of our civilization. It's one of the tenets of the tenets of society. It's one of the structures of society. It is something that we must protect with everything that we have, but yet People I had more faith in seemed quite easy, quite easily swayed to throw it under their bus. So I'm going to take a little look at what it means, what it means for heavy metal, what it means for music, um, about perhaps trying to look at why it's become so attractive to certain people, the idea of cancelling and what that represents. Look, if you're going to do it to me, hey. You know, just remember what I said in the other podcast about returning to the town square with pitchforks. It might happen. I mean, that is one of the most principal concepts within this, is that, you know, cancel someone, make it impossible for them to make a living, feed their family, and you create. There must be some superhero, there must be some Star Trekian analysis here, but you make them more powerful or more angry or you don't convert anyone with those forms of debate well they aren't debate you don't convert anybody by cancelling them by cancelling their right to speak by cancelling their right to make a living all you do is you just reverberate anger throughout society and it doesn't work it doesn't work so let's take a little look at why why this has become such a thing. Now, I've said this before in the podcast that I think we're deranged. We've become deranged by social media. It has, for 10 years, it has rewired us and we are broken. I think mentally we are broken. And I think what's happened is that Twitter has now spilled out into real life and that attitudes that before were only held by the loudest person in the room and everyone else left the room and went about their way, went about their their life and just said, right, that small room, that little antechamber of nonsense is yours and yours alone. You can inhabit it 
with your followers. This has now become something far greater and a much bigger problem to society because the structure that we have created with social media rewards it rewards idiocy it rewards ill thought out um, proselytizing it rewards the angriest comment it rewards outrage it rewards all of these things it doesn't reward standing in the middle and saying hey what we need is debate and rationality I'm reminded of these incredible, the incredible Netflix documentary about Gore Vidal, Gore Vidal and William Buckley, um, which I recommend to anybody to watch as an example of how two sides of a debate who seemingly utterly despise each other are trotted out on TV for these mammoth debates. And they're engrossing and fascinating. And people sat down and digested them you know they were talked about the next day and the, at the water cooler or over coffee and it seems a great totem of an older society that allowed discourse between these enemies who are seething with rage at each other but now there is no there seems no recourse to that there seems no recourse at all and what you've realised is that and this is what I think is that what social media has done has created a religion out of a religion out of ideals of morals of of this discourse i.e. when something ceases to be an object of reason and becomes an article of faith well then there's nothing you can do you can't reason with the flat earther you can't reason with the religious because the whole structure they've based their life upon depends on its very existence. So rationality, reason and debate, which are three things that I hold in more esteem than virtually anything, are irredeemable. They're, they're, you can't cash that check anymore because what you're dealing with, oddly enough, is a religious revival. As they say, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And therefore, I very much believe in, even though Voltaire didn't say it, I think, that we must defend the rights of those we disagree with, yada, yada, yada. What does that mean anyway, by the way? Um, I think it was attributed to his ideals as opposed to him actually saying it. But if sunlight is the best disinfectant, then what happens when you silence people? You must drag them, drag their arguments and debates out into the sunlight and interrogate them. And therefore, hold them up to the light. So if somebody wants to argue something that seems so self-evident and contrary, um, then debate, debate the people who, you know, like I said, maybe what we need to do is debate these people. However, what's happened is that as a trope of the new left, I guess we can say, you know, we can we can discuss what's happening on the new right, I guess, as well. But for both of these sides, they're very much mired in identity politics. When I talk about the new left, I, I make that div division between the old left. Say, for, the, for example, the old left maybe cared about rent, education, healthcare, actual, genuine things that I could see myself within. Whereas the new left, as in identity politics, and all that comes with it, the religious revival of identity politics, and which I see little, if anything, of myself in. Um, there is no 
arguing or debating with the religious side of this. And that's what we must call it for what it is. is a, it's a religious revival. Woke is a religious revival. And there is no, there is no reasoning with it. Um, on those terms, I remember in the 90s, for example, to call someone a Nazi, a national socialist, is what it means, um, was a pretty heavy claim. It was a pretty heavy thing to throw at somebody. And, you know, we were at school told that that was a pretty heavy word that you could you could throw around. And so you, you treated it with the reverence or that you treated it with the respect it deserved as a rather heavy word. Now it just simply means anyone who disagrees with me. It's used to... It's used to describe anyone who sits in the middle ground, anybody who may have even a question to ask about the objectives of this, of the Flat Earth Society. And on those terms, what I seem to understand is that the left are demanding justice, but the right are demanding liberty. But in the, in the search for justice, the left are willing to, to ad abdicate their responsibility to freedom of speech. And I really find that very troubling because traditionally it would have been the left who would have been the defenders of free speech. I mean, I don't know if people particularly even realize that the idea of shouting fire in a crowded theater when this senator called Oliver Wendell Holmes asked for an example of when freedom of speech um, you know, for a negative example of the freedoms of speech. What people forget is that he was um, a senator who was sentencing to prison escaped Yiddish Ru Russian pogroms who were opposed to America's entry to the First World War. So even on those terms, it was a setup. It was a religious setup that was taking place. Personally, I'm a free speech absolutist because I think the alternative is far too dark to comprehend. And let's call it what it is. Cancel culture is censorship and censorship is the is the jackboot of authoritarianism. It's the it's the cornerstone of tyranny, not to mention the ugly stepchild of stupidity, because, as I said, sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. But this is no longer the case, because if you call anybody you disagree with a Nazi or a fascist, then you don't need to debate them. You don't need to discuss anything with them. And you don't need to discuss anything with anybody who has ever had anything to do with those people you accuse them of being, i.e. being adjacent. What does that even mean? You once talked to somebody who I disagree with. This is what really worries me, is that the creeping hand of authoritarianism is that these are the, these are the handmaidens and the foot soldiers of authoritarianism, of a cultural Maoism, that they don't realize, in my opinion, that, for example, I read a report, a story many years ago about how a man in Iraq spilled coffee over the newspaper that morning and was happened to do it in front of a member of the military police. And you weren't allowed to desecrate an image of Saddam Hussein. And he ended up being tortured in front of his family for desecration of an image of Saddam. And the Ba'athist regime, the Ba'athist regime modeled itself on Stalinism. They modeled itself on this element of fear that should be permeated through all levels of society. 
And I don't think that people realize that part of that was the control of speech. And yet this is what people are demanding. They're demanding others to be cancelled. And yet, as I mentioned before in another podcast, some of those people, when I say to them, hey, do you, know, do you believe in rehabilitation for prisoners? Yeah, sure. So you don't believe in the death penalty? No, of course not. Okay. But you believe in the, let's say, the, the death penalty of Twitter to cast people out of the square of the marketplace of ideas or transactions or their ability to earn to feed their children and you wonder what enemies are going to come back tenfold it's so regressive it's so intellectually redundant as even a concept that this is how you convert people but I think what's happening is that people feel well I mean like I said I think people are deranged by social media but because people don't have hobbies anymore, this sounds really naive, but they don't have hobbies anymore, they don't have interests anymore, activism is the opiate. Activism is is playing softball at the weekend. It's, it's LARPing at being a revolutionary. And on those terms, people feel like they're taking part in a great moment of history. And so therefore, cancelling somebody who's coming to speak, cancelling a band, what does this mean for music? I mean, don't forget when you cancel something, you're also canceling your own ability to maybe gain any kind of knowledge or insight from the situation. Because not only are you deciding for other people what they can and cannot hear, digest, read, which is itself uh, the iron will of authoritarianism, you are also limiting your own understanding of the situation when you decide such and such a band is problematic in quotes a word I keep hearing all the time problematic what does that mean so Orwellian so dystopian so open-endedly evil because well he was problematic said the military guard in Saddam Hussein's regime before he got a bullet to the head Oh, Alan, you're being far too melodramatic. But this is where things start, where you dehumanize the people who you're supposed to be opposed to to such a degree that any measure will do, any level will do. Starts with a bike lock, ends with a Molotov cocktail, then it might be a gun, maybe be a bullet. And if you've dehumanized that person to such a process, well, then what matter? What matter? And what fascinates me about all of this is that somehow the foot soldiers of this modern-day authoritarianism seem to believe that they get the last word. That when the religious police or the, the security come for them, that they are going to go, well, no, hang on, I've been on the right side of this for the last decade. Surely you can't come for me and my children and my significant others. But that's not how authoritarianism works. Even Trotsky got the ice pick, right? That's not how it works. All those loyal to Stalin at the beginning got purged. That's what happens. And so you really want to think about what it is that you are cheerleading for. I mean, did it make any difference to cancel or to get Marduk cancelled at a venue? Did it? Or did it just make them bigger? Did it just mean that the last album charted in Germany? Did it just mean that more festivals booked them? 
I think you could say that that was a job not particularly well done. And so on whose terms are they being cancelled when people wish to cancel a speaker at a college or a speaker at a festival or a literary festival or a political event? As I said, if you drive things underground, you make martyrs of people and you give them far more credence than perhaps they deserve. I mean, what you end up being is a prisoner of your own ignorance on these terms. But like I said, if we're in the middle of a religious revival, which I think a very great part of is a war on science, a war on mathematics, a war on reason, then of course um, it makes sense that you want ignorance as your main principle on those terms. I mean, what did the what did the church do to Galileo? So what exactly am I saying? What exactly am I saying? I thought it was about time maybe that I had a little discussion on some of these things because look at what happened, for example, to Salman Rushdie when he wrote the Satanic Verses. But you can be sure that 95, 98% of the people protesting that back in the day when the imam issued a fatwa on his head, um, sentenced him to death, and he lived in hiding for 20, 25 years, is that most people never read the book. Most people never read the book. They had no understanding of it. Just like you have no understanding of Mugwa's politics. Really? Have anybody whoever demanded their cancellation sat down and discussed with them what they do and do not believe? Who is in authority to do so? Who decides, who calls, who calls time on um, a band's ability to speak their mind and then kicks it upstairs to a higher authority? Who is that higher authority? Because let's be clear about it. If, if we have framed the terms of the debate that anybody who disagrees is either a far left or far right or fascist or Nazi, therefore you don't need to debate with them. You don't need to talk with them. All you need to do is put the paper in front of them with the terms that you want them to sign. And if they refuse to sign, well, that's it. You're out of the marketplace. Head to the gulag. And you can have the self-satisfaction of turning, grinding the wheels of history. You can have some small victory, some small sense of winning. And I understand that that is a great temptation because we're living in a moment where um, people feel incredibly powerless. They feel divested of their agency. And so therefore, so therefore, making this mark, this small sense of winning becomes very important and it becomes everything. And also, if you were to say to people, hey, you know those guys you're fighting, those guys you, you think are you're diametrically opposed to, what about this, that you've been set up in opposition to let the powers that be free run at a completely different narrative and the pair of you have just been set up to fight each other? Maybe that could be nearer to the truth, so therefore you should sit down with them and talk to them and find out that you've probably got many of the same gripes and enemies and complaints, and but nobody wants to do that because we've created a situation where there is no sphere of debate in the center ground, where even for asking these questions, 
somebody somewhere will take it upon themselves to go, I need to find out some stuff about this guy to get him cancelled. Just because you've asked the question. Because we've created a sphere where there is no, there is no place, essentially. Twitter has spilled out into real life. And they say that only, what, 4 or 5% of people send something like 60 or 70% of tweets. Now, maybe I've just pulled those figures out of my arse, but I have a feeling they're pretty near to the truth. So add to this the fact that the news media cycle, and I've said this several times, the news media cycle is based on clicks. The algorithm is driven by your sense of outrage. It's driven by all our senses of hopelessness and fear. It's driven by our sense of desperation. And so on those terms, having a boogeyman, an enemy, uh, whether it's the enemy is Antifa or the enemy is the alt-right or whoever the enemy is, there's there's some boogeyman that's, that's, that's shadowing your ability to structure your own life that's dogging you at every turn. But is that really... Is that really true? Is that really how it is? Or is just the optics of the situation are so hardwired now into our retina as soon as we wake up and face the screen that we are literally addicts. We're addicted to this level of interaction. We're addicted to this level of um, constant stimulation. And it's angry stimulation. And here we are in this lockdown period where we feel powerless and as I said, divested of agency. So what could be better than a small sense of winning by getting, I don't know, said XXX band cancelled from something or other gig? Of course, that's not happening now. That's not happening at all. I wonder, was this what everybody wanted? No gigs. No gigs at all. In fact, that's there is a kind of, there's a morality tale there that perhaps I hadn't thought about, which is the sense that Everyone always assumes that um, the book stops with them, that the final judgment on who or should not be cancelled stops with them. And I think it's a naive, it's a naive, naive way of looking at the world. And history tells us that that's not true. And so, whatever stops with you, remember that that power will be taken from you also by someone else or some other system of agency. Until therefore, until at the end, there is no gigs. And here you are with no gigs, no matter what side of the political divide you are on. So that's that's where you're, maybe this is what you wanted. I don't know. And so I didn't want to give it any particular airtime, but somebody sent me a, a pamphlet, I guess, a, a mission statement of, um, how can we say a paper that certain agents and actors in this whole identity political um, debate, I suppose they would have two or three years ago been called social justice warriors, but um, the attempt to make it mandatory for bands to have to sign a paper saying they will not break any of these rules or laws, and you can imagine what they are, that there must be no ableism in their lyrics there must be no of course right wing this left wing well particularly the isms the phobias the whatevers and that any contravening of this any contravening of this particular rigid mission statement means you can't play and this may 
sound on the face of it, like most things with the identitarian um, woke culture or cancel culture, that it has a grain of justice in it. And I think that's a very important thing to understand is that there are people who are willing, who want justice more than anything. And so therefore, personal, your personal liberty or agency doesn't matter in the terms of justice because that's what they're striving for on any terms. So if this is something that comes into being, into fruition, becomes a statute of law um, in some horrific Orwellian dystopian future, then this will mean who can play. Because if you've defined everything that opposes this as therefore fascist or Nazi, then you could just, with a flick of your wrist, have no one literally play. And so who is this? Is this, uh, is, is every rock band in history therefore sexist? All these classic rock bands, is every work of art, whether it's great paintings, poems, um, the lack of humour, irony, hubris, pathos, the lack of understanding of the world, the, all of these things are taken from your ability to make that decision. Now, is that some sort of world where everybody really wants to live, whereby a friend of mine was playing in a band and she was told, your band got cancelled because we saw somebody in the crowd at one of your gigs wearing a shirt of a band we disliked. Who knew politics is just a t-shirt? And you are your audience's keeper. And you're going to be judged by who does who does and doesn't like your band. It reminds me of the days when um, the PMRC in the 1980s used to try and have their dirty dozen and cancel at the time, they were trying to put parental advisory stickers and lyrics on albums. 18 years old to buy Wasp or Slayer or whatever, which in, which now looks positively cute compared to um, the measures people are going to now to have entire careers erased and people banned for wrong think. Um, people need to read 1984, really. They really need to have a look into their Orwellian soul if they subscribe to these things. But the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Center in the 80s, was a right-wing um, Christian group run by Tipper Gore, who was married to Al Gore, who later became the uh, environmental inconvenient truth guy and um, ran for office and president. But you can see how, the, how this conversation has moved from being a trope of the conservative religious right, who were against these things, to now the woke new left or let's just call them woke cancel culture um, authoritarianists or whatever you want to call it um, that's, that in those 30-40 years somehow the baton has been handed from the religious right to the woke left now and I think that the word religious is the is the key word that links those two ideologies because all of the elements now of woke culture to me represent or can be seen to represent a religious revival and therefore deviating from that being a heretic who comes out and says uh, the the earth is not flat um, means you can be stoned in the town square and how does this affect 
heavy metal how does this affect metal in general i mean you know there's a, it's a complicated it's a complicated debate but part of it is i think that um in the mid 90s late 90s that um a particular kind of punk started to get really really interested in black metal and then as the further they looked into the scene they realized they didn't like the people the politics if you ask me a rather typical middle class academic um moral superiority where they arrived into the black metal scene, had a look around and went, you know what would be better if we change this into something after our own image? I mean, I might do a whole podcast dedicated to this. It's not that I'm not a fan of many punk bands, but I think that there was always an uncomfortable or an uneasy truce between metal and punk in that punk always viewed it suspiciously and through the, through a kind of collegiate academic lens and always thought of metal as its slightly dumb half-brother, and therefore lauded over it a certain moral superiority. And I think that that is an element at play in the crossing of the streams in the late 90s, early 2000s, where, as I explained, a certain generation of punks came at black metal with a certain attitude and gave birth to certain stereotypes, certain ideals and also the idea that it was within their moral remit, their political remit to simply cancel bans. Um, and even though it's a small, as I said, a small percentage of the general argument there's no denying that something like that happened i also think there's an economic aspect to this which is a bit more grubby which is that people within the punk scene realized there was more money to be made in the metal scene metalheads paid more for tickets for shirts there was simply more metalheads and they showed up in more numbers to venues and therefore venues that would have had a certain politic found themselves having to book bands that they weren't exactly sure about all their motives or bands that simply came from a different scene but that paid the rent so there was an uncomfortable truce between a whole of different complex theories and yet at the same time I've often found that when I've sat down you know at a, a an after party or something in a punk venue and talked to the people um, what you always find is that we all have the same common enemies, so to speak. We all have the same, generally the same opinions of the institutions of power in the state. Um, and that most of the obfuscation going on is a smokescreen, but a very well-formed and developed smokescreen in order to stop people speaking to each other. And therefore we fall into the same problems that I've just been talking about for the last well 25 years anyway now of course some people may argue that the the sort of bloated corpse of black metal by the end of the 90s early 2000s needed a new injection um, of people of ideals of an, uh, some new musical angles and maybe you know I'm not going to pretend that I don't have my own particular biases as a metalhead and somebody who grew up um, at the ground zero of second wave of black metal 
um, those are where my allegiances lie, I cannot deny. But I would listen to an argument that the likes of a Wolves in the Throne Room wouldn't now exist without that infusion between the two scenes. Um, so musically, yeah, maybe there was some things that needed to happen. Just maybe culturally, there was a few butting of heads. But, you know, I would listen to that argument. I think that's really what the nature of this podcast itself is about. I think in truth what it is, is the decade-long derangement we've had at the hands of social media and the fact that the very nature of this discussion has empowered um, the loudest voices in the room and that reasoning, debating, conversing doesn't reward anyone anything. It certainly doesn't reward the platforms. It doesn't reward the platforms. It doesn't reward big tech. It doesn't reward the red tops that want and demand clicks. It doesn't reward them at all because they, like everyone else, have seen their um, journalistic revenue and power diminish and diminish and diminish as people read less and less of the printed word. And so therefore they were driven over the edge of this moral precipice as well because they realized that, oh, calling Adam from Behemoth a racist is, this, get, this is what gets clicks. This is, this is what drives people to the channel. This is what gets the most readers, etc., or whoever else. Um, and so therefore, it's like the, you know, the dog chasing its own tail on these terms, is that once you're in that game of needing those, needing those clicks in order to survive, then, of course, the more and more salacious stories you have to, you have to make up. I mean, let's be honest, we could make I could make a news story probably by going out into the street now in 20 minutes and pay someone and go look I'm going to pretend to do this you you act this way we'll film it on the phone you run away blah 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 let's make a news story and then post it as a shocking instance of misogyny sexism homophobia on the streets of Dublin I don't know whatever we could set it up everything it's again this concept of I guess suppose Adam Curtis would have called it hypernormalization but I suppose in traditional terms it was just the propagandizing of the day to day anyway what am I talking about like I said even Trotsky got the ice pick right because people think that they escape and one of the things that I find really um, frightening about some of these some of the noises I hear from people I th think or who I thought knew better is the is the almost Kafka-esque nature of their arguments i.e. if you disagree with me then the then you are an ism of some degree i.e. here are the terms of well here are the terms of my statement you sign at the dotted line or you don't if you don't, you're heading for the moral gulag, so to speak. But, like I said, and people may call me melodramatic if they want to, but I think that the moral gulag eventually leads to the very real gulag on both sides of the political divide. Um, but it is a Kafkaesque question. 
where it's 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 Stalinist in its nature because it's set up on such on such terms that if you disagree, if you disagree with any of the terms of justice, uh, then you are by very inference the opposite. You cannot say, well, I'd like a bit from column A and a bit from column B, but I have a question about column C. Um, so can we reason between those three things? That's not part of the religious revival. That's not part of the religious nature of this conversation. Because you either have to believe or you don't. Anyway, so it may all seem a little bit inconsequential considering the fact that um, there is no gigs to cancel. There is no people coming to your college to speak. There is no elements of this, that, and the other. It's mainly just been the hyperactivity of Twitter that's taken over this sphere. Um, and the opprobrium, it's been dealing out the the rod to the back has not necessarily been used for musicians as of late. It seems to be reserved for comedians somehow. Um, but and that is a very interesting term. Do remember that the rod you make will be used for your own back, so to speak. Um, and maybe I'm creating a rod for my very own back here. But I did think to myself, well, I've always spoken about some of these things, spoken about such things. Some people like it, some people dislike it. I don't think I've ever been particularly divisive in my opinions about these things. But what I will say is that I will always defend the right of somebody I disagree with to their freedom of speech because I think that that is one of the, as I said, one of the pillars of civilization. Now, if you believe that civilization needs to be torn down and rebuilt, well, then maybe you don't respect freedom of speech and it means pretty much nothing to you. On those terms, then, we don't have a hell of a lot to talk about. Um, the line in the sand is very much drawn or the barbed wire on the fence has been erected long ago in your grey matter. But it is at our own very great peril that we that we disregard the merit of freedom of speech, that we we think it is something trivial, we we feel it's something that can be you know, do we really need this in the grand scheme of things? Because again it is it is privy to the same structures of power as everything else and that's how it will be wielded because what often is missing from all of this is any form of nuance it's such an unintellectual argument it's such an un it's so mired in um ignorance to me because most people are nuanced they're nuanced by their very nature um, there are elements of my politics, which, by the way, are not really any of your business, but there are elements of my politics that would seem to some people contradictory, that would seem to have an element of cognitive dissonance about them. But that's that's the nuance and the contradiction of human nature, that we don't all err on one side or the other, that we, we, we take elements of our upbringing, of our parents, of our ancestors, we take elements of our travel, our experience of meeting different people, and we apply them. Um, we apply them across the board. So to, to suggest that we're all, we all lack nuance is such an anti-intellectual view of the world. And I think that that's what people want. 
well not people but let's call them agents of the state institutions of power they would like people to believe that they have no nuance and that it's the reds against the blues and that's just how it is and you can't sit in the middle or you can't take a little bit from either side and if somebody wants to discuss these things or debate me then why not go hey alan i kind of disagree with some of the things you said how about this particular festival let's do a debate or let's do a zoom conversation with these things but of course that takes some courage and that takes some guts because if you've set out the parameters that everyone you disagree with is from the complete opposite end of the political spectrum then that means you can't really speak to anybody but your own echo chamber. So that's the test. That's the test of courage. That's the test of character, I think, which is to say, okay, I will speak to somebody that I think might have a difference of opinion. But consensus seems to be a dangerous word now. And like I said at the start of this, the idea that somehow freedom of speech would end up becoming a dirty phrase um, would be end up end up being thrown at you as if you were using it as a shield to defend some other nefarious idea or concept that might be lurking in the dark recesses of your brain I mean have no have no worry that you can have access to that when we have under the skin surveillance but your thought crime might be someone else's freedom of speech. Um, so we need to be careful about those things. But even as a concept, hate speech, what does that even mean? Think about what that actually means. It's to be filed under the war on terror, the war on drugs. It's something of a similar, something similar to me, because how can you have a war on such an abstraction? Um, all speech is, to my mind, freedom of speech. Like I said, sunlight is just the best disinfectant for it. A war on hate or trying to stop people hating is such an abstract and strange principle. It doesn't really make any sense to me. As all you will create with that very intention is more hate. So by its very nature, it seems like, a, like I said, a Kafkaesque, magician's trick to get people so invested in what that means that they don't really understand that what they're doing is attacking the very nature of freedom of speech and the thing about this whole situation this whole lockdown situation is that you do get the feeling that to come out of this a certain society is going to come out of this that has been so that is so bedraggled that is such a sense of um, has such a beaten down quality to it that is just so tired and fatigued with the situation that it will wave away some of its rights, some of its some of its institutions, some of its some of its morals will just go. Look, look, I just need to see the end of this. Very much in a kind of post nine eleven um, world where people seemed to sign away some of their rights in order for greater security some form or some element which is similar to that in the sense that people will become so tired and fatigued by the situation that they might just hand over the keys to the of the asylum to some of the 
some of the inmates of some of these ideals that I'm talking about and go, look, just fix this, fix this fatigue, fix this tiredness. And they very well might, for example, decide that personal liberty is not that important when the overarching theme is absolute justice or that we need to tighten the parameters in the surveillance of society and therefore dissent and what it represents is something that we can just quite easily allow the foot soldiers of these ideals to just quash without a moment's notice or like I said hand over the kosh to these people and go look just get on with the job because life has been so complicated for the last year or two years or three years that I need some deliverance from it and so therefore on those terms get on with it get on with the purge get on with the pogrom and on the and if so I'll see you in the I'll see you on the other side. So that, my friends, is the end of this episode of Agitators Anonymous. Um, hopefully I didn't lose my train of thought too often in the middle of that um, and become lost between the words, leaving these huge, big, long pauses, as is my want. But it's a serious subject, and maybe every now and again we can try and tackle a few serious subjects. If you've got this far, you probably agree with me that Freedom of speech is of paramount importance. And if you haven't got this far, perhaps you've turned me off because you disagree. But don't forget that even if I disagree with you, I'll defend your right to have that freedom of speech. All right. Agitators Anonymous, metal never bends. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.